Another warm welcome to you if this is your first Sunday. My name's Tom. I'm one of the elders here as well. And if you've got a Bible, if you could turn to 1 Peter. Uh, don't worry if you haven't got your Bible with you. It will come up on the screen behind me. 1 Peter. That's quite near the book, near the end of the book of your Bible. You know what I mean. It's hot. It's in your Bible, near the back. And um, today we're going to be starting our brand new sermon series uh, entitled Tested, which is going to be taking us through the next couple of months and into the beginning of September. Who here has read the book of 1 Peter? Yeah, it is an incredible, an incredible letter written most likely, we're almost totally sure, by the Apostle Peter himself, who was a man who loved Jesus, who knew Jesus, who walked with Jesus, who let Jesus down at times, and at other times did brilliantly for Jesus. So he's a guy probably that most of us can kind of identify with in one form or another. And this book that we're about to read was written from Rome, has a code name called Babylon, which we'll explain later on, but it's, it's most likely that Peter was writing from, from Rome over to a group of churches uh, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Thank you very much. Which, was, uh, which is in basically modern-day Turkey now. But this is the big idea, okay? This is the main thing to hold in your mind as we read it. Put your hands on your head. This is the thing we've got to... Hands on your head, please, Wilson. Thank you very much. I will pick on people. My Hands on your head. Okay, we take it down now. This is the thing we've got to hold in our brains as we go through. Peter is writing this letter to those people in, those, in that place in modern-day Turkey who are undergoing tests and trials and suffering and difficult times. If we don't hold that truth in our mind as we read it, it will still be brilliant theology which will change our lives, but we will miss the context that we need to have and we will lose something of the power that God wants us to receive as this. And the key thing is this, the key kind of thing that Peter is trying to achieve through writing this letter to people who are being tested and are having difficult times, is this. I don't want you to be surprised when tests and obstacles and challenges come your way. In fact, he says those exact words, 1 Peter 4.12, he says, Do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. And we all go, yeah, we got it, we know that one, yeah. But then the reality is, often as Christians, then when a painful trial does come, we act surprised. We, we, we freak out. We go, what the heck is happening? And particularly, I think, after seeing that video, we're very reminded of, it, of us living over here in sunny England, one of the wealthiest nations in the world. We are kind of unconsciously at times, we kind of have this, this rights mentality that we have a right to a comfortable, pain-free life. Well, of course, we're British, you know? And we can even make that comfort and that pleasure and that freedom from pain and suffering actually somewhat of an idol. And so therefore when sometimes these testing things can come in, at times we can actually act surprised. And God says, no, 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 Peter's saying, I don't want you to be surprised. That's the big idea. When these things come, I want you to be ready. I don't want you to be, oh, because the thing is when we're surprised by things, maybe it's just me, I don't think it is, we often don't do terribly well. When things just happen and we're not ready, we often, I remember years ago, I was 17, um, waiting for the teacher, our religious studies teacher, to turn up. And I was in the, uh, in the uh, room, the window was open, and my mate Tom Arculus, who was six foot eight, he weighed 20 stone, quite a big guy, was sitting on the window, just because it was a hot day, and was kind of you know, sitting, just looking out. And I, as you do, creeped up to Tom Arculus and went, save your life! You know, I gave him a, I gave him a knock, and, and, and he started to topple out of the window. And obviously, big guy like that, big momentum, but I grabbed him and pulled him back in. It was all fine. It was all fine. Problem was, Tom Arculus, a normal placid kind of guy, went into a fury. And he literally threw me across the room. Not a word of a lie. I hurled across the room, right into the sun, and actually smashed through the other window on the other side. My elbow went through the other window. I was screaming for mercy in a crumpled heap on the floor as Tom Arculus, bright red face and sweaty, was about to pummel me. At that moment, the teacher walked in. Nice. He walked in, and it wasn't a pretty sight. The reality is that, is that Tom Arculus, when he faced the test of, you know, did he trust me, he was surprised. He didn't react very well. 
And we can kind of be a bit like that in life when things happen that are a bit scary or whatever, a bit difficult. If we're not ready, we can do the equivalent, the Tom Oculus. But I want us to be ready. Because you see, when we're ready, when tests come, we will do well. I remember 11 years old, or kind of 10 and a half, getting rid of my 11 plus. don't know if they still have that nowadays, but, you know, sort of... And I remember thinking, I knew, if I went into that test without having got ready, <laughs> not good. I knew I wasn't good at tests, I got all panicky and nervous. You know, I, I knew I would do badly. But my mum, being the wonderful mother that she is, spent weeks and weeks going through these kind of tests she got somehow, practicing with me. I was going through them again and again. And when that 11 plus came, when that test came, I passed. Thank you. I passed, yes. But I know it was because I was ready. It wasn't just good, you know, it wasn't like I was good at tests. It was because I was ready. And that's what this letter is about. It's about getting us ready as Christians so that we will do well. When trials come, when tests come, we don't act surprised, but we do well. And the reason that I want us to look at this is this, is because what we're going to learn in the next few weeks and months is that actually tests, although they're painful at times, is that we've got to translate the test. We've got to understand it as God sees it. Because tests, you see, that we're going to see aren't because God is vindictive or nasty. He is good all the time. Can I have a hallelujah? Hallelujah. He's always good. But he does allow tests because, like a carpenter, you know, when he's built a shelf or something made out of wood and he wants to test it, he'll give it a little shake. Yeah, it's pretty secure. And God will at times give us a little shake. He'll just test us to see whether we've been put together well. And God wants us to be ready. And so in the coming weeks, we're going to see that the Apostle Peter, in effect, is going to be saying this. Listen, for those of you facing tests in your life, God feels with you. God hears the cry of your heart. God is there with you. And yet God will, at times, in his loving mercy, allow us to be tested. Because, this is the truth, is that tests don't just test our strength and our maturity, but also they actually increase our maturity. We will find when we look back in times in our life where they've been testing at times, although they're painful, nine times out of ten, when we've allowed the test to do its work, actually we'll say, no, do you know what? I actually grew in God. And God wants to increase us. He wants us to be a church which is strong and mature and actually able to handle the things of God. And so, You might say, well, Tom, why why are we looking at this book? Why are we looking at this? Frankly, because many of us are facing tests. Many of us in our lives right now are facing challenges that we need to have a biblical mindset on, yeah? We need to see as God sees. And if you're not, rejoice, you will do one day. I guarantee it. As we're going to see, it's inevitable. Say inevitable. Turn to the person next to you with a joyful face. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. Hallelujah. It's good to be a Christian. Thank you, Lord. It's inevitable. Yes, indeed, it is. And so we have to learn what the Bible says about this. So let's read then from verse 1 of chapter 1, first 12 verses. We're going to spend the next two weeks on these 12 verses. I'm going to take the first six. Jeff Mel's going to take the second six. But they're one unit, so we're going to read them as one unit. Peter, an apostle apostle of Jesus Christ, (laughs) to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace, may grace, (laughs) I don't do well in the heat, you may have gathered that. (laughs) Oh Lord, give me grace. Not grace, grace. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Lord, we really love you. We just present these next few minutes together and we just lay ourselves before you and say, Holy God, wonderful King, pour your Spirit upon us. Come and teach us. In Jesus' name, Amen. So we see a couple of points here. Number one, tests are real. And number two, rejoicing is real hard, but crucial. Tests are real, but secondly, rejoicing is real hard, but crucial. So first of all then, we see here that tests are real. So the context, as I've mentioned, is that Peter, he's writing from Rome into modern day Turkey. I think we might have a map come up at this moment. There should be a map, there we go. So he's writing on the left-hand side, you see the boot of Italy. In there, there's a place called Rome, we've all heard of it. He's writing from Rome over to here, on the right-hand side, you can see those areas, that is modern-day Turkey now. And he's writing to churches there that probably he hasn't particularly met firsthand, but he's there communicating to them. Most of them would have been Gentile Christians, which means they were non-Jewish Christians. And these guys, most likely, it seems, were facing real persecution. We don't know necessarily specifically whether it was a specific wave of persecution. Scholars aren't clear. But what is clear is that they were facing really big deal persecution for their faith. And in that situation, Peter writes these words. And verse 6 is the key verse, really, for the whole of those first 12 verses. It hel- it's like a hinge that helps us to unlock the entire of those 12 verses. If necessary... You have been grieved by various trials. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And what in essence he's saying here, he's saying it is necessary that you have been grieved by various trials in order for your your faith to grow and mature. He's already in verse 2 mentioned this specific phrase for sprinkling with his blood. And that is the reference to Jesus Christ's suffering at the cross where his blood was shed for us. So he's already mentioned Jesus Christ's suffering And now he comes on to the reality of the suffering of these Christians and the trials and tests that they're facing. And this is our first somewhat obvious but very important point. Is that if we're going to follow Jesus Christ, is that at times we will suffer and be tested as indeed he suffered. We will face things. Luke 9 says, the Son of Man must suffer many things. But if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. So what is a test? What do I actually mean by that? In the Tyndale Tyndale Dictionary, it defines it as this, is the process of proving one's worth. When ascribed to God in dealing with his people, it means that God tests his people's faith and moral character. So when Jesus was in the desert, the word there is used tempt, but it's the same word in Greek as as the word test. It's the word parasmos, When the word is used in a negative way, it means to tempt, that is to entice or solicit or provoke to sin. But in the desert, when Jesus was tempted slash tested, same word, it could be utterly applied to Jesus. He was tested by God and found faithful, while he was tempted by Satan and found sinless. So the Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness to have his faith tested, but the agent in the test was indeed the wicked one whose whole object was to seduce Jesus from his allegiance. So Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into something that the Father was allowing, but was using the enemy, indeed, to test him. So, on this cheery note, our first point is this. Tests are real. Tests are real. And I just want us to kind of be real about that. I just want us... On this summer's day, as we go into this new series, to actually, almost as it were, not to rush into other stuff, but first of all, lay that as a foundation. 
in our hearts is that as we follow Christ, is that tests will surely come our way. And the word here, grieve, is a strong word. In Greek, it's baros, baros. And what it means is a heaviness or an anguish, a deepness in the person's soul. And so Peter is going to say again and again in the coming weeks, as we look ahead, he's going to say, in all these areas of your life, if you're following Christ, you will be tested. In your marriages, they will be tested. In your workplace, under ungodly leaders, you will be tested. In terms of leadership and following humbly, you will be tested. In terms of your, mar- your moral character and your holiness, you will be tested. And he's warning us so that we can be ready to do well when they come. But he's wanting us to realise that these tests are real. And they're painful. This word grief is like, it's a, it's a, it's a strong word. It's not like a light-hearted word. It's saying these tests that you're facing are causing grief in your life. And so today, I just want us to feel permission to be real about any tests that we may be facing in our lives. Okay? I want us to be real and before God and each other to know that this must be a church. It must be a church where if you are facing tests, big tests or even little tests, is that you know that it's not a taboo. Yeah? I can't talk about tests because it's like a positive church, you know? When I lived with my mate Kev, many of you know Kev Jones, we had nicknames for each other. He was Negatron, I was Positron, because I'm always positive. And he was always, you know, got a little bit cheesed off sometimes, so he was Negatron, and I was Positron. And I'm a positive guy, you may have noticed. I am enthusiastic, and I love Jesus, and I love life, and I am nearly always positive. And that's good. But the problem with that could potentially be that therefore... It could mean that the church environment could at times not be unreal, but potentially. And so if you were ever facing something that you thought, I just don't feel like Tom Shaw dancing around the front. You know, I've had a horrendous week actually, and I still love God, but and my passion, and our passion as an eldership, is that you wouldn't go, well, I can't really be part of the church then. You know, it's just too sort of boppy. It's just too happy. You know, it's, I'm, I've, I just feel like this. I still love God, but there's this thing. And our passion is that you would understand is that if we're going to follow Christ, tests are real. And it's okay. It's okay to feel like that. Some of you right now are facing tests. I guarantee it. You'll be facing tests because, frankly, in the last few days, weeks or months, things have just gone really wrong in your life. And you'll be facing a test right now. Some of you, things have gone really right, really, really well really great and you won't realize it but right now you'll be facing a test in terms of how you handle that as well some of you right now will be facing tests financially we're in a recession and you will just have found you've been trying to do your budget and get everything but somehow it's just gone upside down and somehow you're thinking oh my goodness i'm being tested in the realm of my finances some of you physically even with some illnesses and different things like that, you're just going to be finding a physical test in your life now. Even getting out of bed at times can be painful and difficult. And there's a test there. Some of you with small kids haven't slept a full night's sleep in a long, long time. That is a huge test. Some of you are going back into that realm, Gustav Strandberg and Nottages and others. You're about to go back into the world of small baby kids. Maybe you'll have those that just sleep through. You probably will. I love you. But... Small kids at times, when they're just up in the middle of the night teething, that can be a huge test. Some of you are cell leaders. You know, you've poured your life into your cell and you're tired, and that's a test. Some of you in your workplaces, actually in your workplaces, it's a big old test. You're dreading Monday morning because you kind of love them and you kind of don't. Some of them are just really hard to be around. Some of you have been tempted to even compromise your integrity tested really tested subtly on that some of you in your family life have big tests going on right now some of you your your kids you haven't changed doing what you do but somehow like they're just changed shall we say they're just a little tricky like a year ago they were like that and now they're just really difficult and some of you in your family life 
your biological family you used to feel so close to and yet now you just feel strangely distant to. And you don't know what's changed. And for some of you, right in your marriages, if you're really honest, you love that, your spouse and you want to work hard on that marriage, but you, are just, you just feel so different. And that is really hard. And it's a test. It's a real test. And we have to be real about that. I remember hearing John Piper, who's an amazing church leader from America, who's been married 35 plus years, telling the, the story of, of how uh, this Christian magazine, a kind of, you know, positive, hey, smiley Christian magazine about leaders and wives. Uh, they said, hey, John, would you and Noel be feature as our big couple this, this month? Would you know, you know, would you be our big smiley couple? And he wrote back and said, yes, well, we can do it, but we won't be smiling. Let's put it that way. On the front cover, we won't be smiling. And he's been very open about the fact that he loves his wife, Noel. He absolutely knows that, you know, God wants their marriage to work, but it has been the biggest challenge in his life. They've had to have counseling for many, many times, which he's found humbling at times. And yet he knows it's a test from God. He's been open about that. Saying, actually, how I deal with this is of huge importance. Emotionally, there'll be tests happening right now. Some of our dearest friends are moving on. Praise God that God has called them and sending them. But that is an emotional challenge. It is a test. And it's amazing how even, even when we know the truth about our wonderful God, we know Jesus loves us. And yet, strangely, as Christians at times, there can be just those waves of just darkness that come in. Those times where you just feel so distant from God. Charles Haddon Spurgeon one of the most incredible preachers of the last few hundred years, who would preach to thousands weekly and just see phenomenal things happen every single year, had to take two to three months off because of depression. He just said the clouds of darkness just rolled in. And he said, I, the only way I could deal with it was just to completely step out of what I was doing. And he at one time had to take six months off from a different country in order to get his head together. C.S. Lewis, William Cooper, John Bunyan, so many of the great men and women who have changed nations and loved God and knew God, yet were tested in the realm of emotional and spiritual difficulties. And some of you, being single, actually, is a huge test. It's a huge test. So I just want us to start today, start this series by being real. By being real. That tests are real. That right now, I hope, if you're going through a test, you know... That nevertheless, God is there with you. You see, there is a gospel in this world, particularly in America, but it's coming into this country as well. It's a gospel that basically says, if you follow Jesus, everything will be all right. Everything will always be fine. Yeah? And, and basically, you just preach positive things all the time, and everything's always positive. And if you've got a situation in your life, just pray to Jesus, and he'll definitely sort it out. Always. Kind of true. Jesus always answers our prayers. He's always there for us. But, you know, sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he just doesn't. Because he's sovereign. Because he's in charge. And ultimately, he can do what he wants. And actually, we need to be a people who realize the Bible allows us to be real about our emotions. Yeah? The Bible is an emotional book. <laughs> it talks about a Jesus who was full of emotion. A Jesus who wept. A Jesus who rejoiced. A Jesus who was shocked. And God wants us to be a people who are real about that. And for some of you, you know, the whole British stiff upper lip thing means that you feel it's difficult at times to be able to admit that. And God wants to say, it's okay. It's okay to know that actually facing these things and admitting them is okay. In Isaiah 53, it says about Jesus, it says, he was a man who was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He knew that actually pain and tests were real. And there's many other tests that you'll be facing that actually I haven't mentioned, but you'll now, even now as I'm saying this, the Holy Spirit will be illuminating them in your heart. And he'll be saying, listen, I just want you to know that the starting place with this is to know it's not that you're out of the will of God, most likely. It's not that you're doing something really wrong. It's actually you're following Jesus. And we're still in a broken world. And actually, at times, you will feel that testing. And remember our big point in the beginning, Peter wants us to be ready. 
He wants us not to be surprised. He, he doesn't want us to go off into our own little bubbles and try and deal with it on our own and block other people out. He wants us to allow his word, the spirit and the community of God to help us do well when those tests come. So first of all then, tests are real. The grief you may be feeling is legit. It is okay. It is totally appropriate for many of the tests that we will face. But the million dollar question is, that I hear you say is, okay Tom, that's encouraging, but what do we do? I, I feel what you're feeling, I get that, I can see it, but what do we actually do when we face those tests? And this is kind of where it gets a bit mad, okay? So just bear with me. The Bible says an interesting thing, and we may have noticed it. Uh, we, uh, we, we may have not noticed it, rather. In verse 6, the context is tests and trials. In this you rejoice, though... What is it? In this you rejoice? You rejoice? Excuse me? You rejoice? Oh, Peter, what are you talking about? You rejoice? This is one of those verses and words that you think, okay, what the blinking Nora is going on? How can this be? I've got to. Re when you're in a test and things are pressured and there's challenges, the very last thing you want to do is rejoice. That kind of sounds like that type of Christianity that I mentioned a minute ago, which is all just like, pretend it's all fine. Pretend it's all fine. What is Peter saying here? What is he saying here? He's saying this. When you're in a test, the only appropriate response, you're to feel the grief, but then you're to respond with rejoicing. You're to res that is the right godly attitude, is to respond with rejoicing. Mark Driscoll, a pastor of America, says in his experience, he's seen that when tests come, normally there's four sinful responses that people can e easily make. Number one, we can, when tests come, we can judge God. God, I thought you were good. I thought you loved me. Judge, judge, judge. Not good. Or, number two, we can envy others who perhaps haven't experiencing those tests, who aren't experiencing those tests that we are. Again, envying, coveting, that's a sin. Thirdly, we can get into self-pity. And effectively, we make ourselves our own God. We basically say, this thing in my life, no one else understands. And without realising it, it's actually a form of pride. Again, that's not right. A fourth wrongful response, when tests come, can be to run to a functional saviour. Yeah? Sex, drugs, rock and roll, whatever. Some sort of thing to alleviate the pressure for a brief moment. Again, Scripture tells us that's a sinful response as well. The right response, when tests and challenges and obstacles come our way, is to rejoice. Look at the language of verse 3. It's rejoicing, crazy language. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ! Exclamation mark! There's an exclamation mark there. Obviously that's not in the original Greek, I'm sure, but the feeling of it is of praise. So think about it. Peter writing to people in horrendous situations, virtually the first words he's saying is praise! Don't choose a sad little song. Choose an upbeat, happy song. This just could seem so insensitive. <laughs> it, you know, it, it seems crazy. You know, we are called to rejoice when we face tests. And like really real rejoicing. You know, not like fakey joy. You know, real rejoicing. So the million dollar question is how? How do we do this? Why do we do this? What, why would we do this? Peter, why and how? What's going on? And our answer to this solution is all in the understanding of wait. Wait, you say? Yes, wait. Now, thank you, Jeff Farnham, for the uh, loan of these scales. Lord, let this go right. Can you see these scales? Most of you can. Now, this is, this is the idea that we can easily miss here. I'll hold these back up. There we go. We have some lovely old-fashioned scales here. Now, we've already said, haven't we? This is rather... Okay, we may not use that for the whole time. But anyway, um, when... What is the word that I said for grief in Greek? That's, that's exactly about baros. Very good. Well done, isn't it? It's actually a heaviness. 
And so we've already said that if we look at these scales here, this is, this is when difficult testing things come, yeah? They can weigh us down. If you see someone who's going through a test, often even physically their shoulders can be slumped. There's a sense of heaviness going on in their life. There's a heaviness. But this is what is so amazing. How do we rejoice? Why do we rejoice? Look with me in verse 8. You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with, what's the next word? Say it again. What's that next word? Say it again. What's the next word? Glory. Glory. It is glory. Now that glory, again in Greek, is the word doxa. And guess what? Would you believe it? The word doxa for glory also has a sense of weight about it. If you look at the way that it is used throughout scripture, it has a sense of abundance and wealth. Thank you, Tim. Put on the floor, yeah, it's fine. It has a sense of weight. This is a big point. Please don't be distracted right now. It has a a sense of weight about it. It says when God's glory came, when his doxa, or in the Hebrew, it's kabod, when the glory of God came, it was weighty. It was weighty. And what he's saying here, and this is huge, he is saying even though you are facing, at one level, the weighty burdens of anguish, yeah, they're weighing you down. At the same time, I am calling you and seeing that in your hearts that your joy is expressible and filled with glory. And he is saying here is that the way that we deal with tests, the reason that we rejoice is because as we rejoice, what we are in effect doing is saying, yes, that test, that thing is really real and it's weighing me down to some degree. But then I turn my attention and I place through rejoicing and celebrating your glory truths on the other side of the scales. I fix my heart and my mind and my life not just on the test that it is. I'm, I'm real about it, it's there and I'm feeling it. But I actually fix the eyes of my heart through learning your scripture, through knowing it, through dwelling upon you on the weight of your glory. That God's glory counterbalances the weight of our pain. At times, it, of course, it will still be there. But what happens is, he's saying here, what you do is you position your entire life around through rejoicing and celebrating God's glorious truths. So that when you therefore face the challenges and trials that come your way, although they're still there, and the gospel doesn't always remove them, your whole life is actually, ultimately, about suddenly something different. It's about the glories of God. It's about the weighty truths of who our God is. And so you see, if your deepest desire is God's glory, and God's knowledge, and his character, and what he's done for you, Actually, what it means is, therefore, the other things weigh much lighter in your life. Because you're living, actually, for his glory and his truths. And this is why, friends, in the coming weeks, 1 Peter is unashamedly theological. It's unashamedly weighty in its biblical truth. Because if we're going to face tests and do well, every single one of us, all of us, man, woman, child, has to be a theologian. And what I mean by that is just that we have a weighty reservoir in our hearts and in our minds of the truths of God. Because otherwise, the, 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 the weight of our trials in life will never be counterbalanced. And that will just be the big thing in our life, as real as they are. And God is going to be calling us, ushering us into a passionate pursuit with heart, mind, body, soul, all of ourselves into pursuing the glories of his truth, of who he is. No, come wind, rain or shine, his incredible character and what he has done for us, the glory of God. That's what God's going to be calling us to. And the way that we put the weights on, I'd do it if I had them there, the way that we put the weights on is through rejoicing. As we rejoice in them, we say, that pain is real, but I give glory for the fact of who you are, bit by bit by bit by bit, things change. That's the key. And that is why rejoicing is not an insensitive thing. Why we always start with rejoicing here on Sunday morning is not because we're all like, really happy all the time. It's, it's the biblical command of God, and it's the key to living a life where tests come, but we do well through them. You can hallelujah if you want. Hallelujah. Thank you. So we're going to finish by looking at five weighty glory truths. We're just going to go straight through them that Peter gives us 
And as we do them, picture with me, Peter placing them on our hearts again. And as we do that, the tests in our life, although they're still real, suddenly they change. Suddenly our lives actually are not all about us and our tests, but they're suddenly about the immensity of our God, the glories of our God. Number one, first weighty truth. According, verse three here, according to his great mercy. Our God, the Christian God, is a God of phenomenal mercy. We live in a world that is merciless. We live in a world where 15-year-olds stab each other to death. We live in a world where parents abuse their kids. We live in a world where national leaders absolutely rape, pillage, and just dominate their, their nations without any respect for God. We live in a world that is absolutely, in large part, a place without any mercy. And even in our lives, at times, if we're honest, we can be people who in our natural state aren't merciful. And our God is overflowing with mercy. Our God, he's not just merciful, he is great in mercy. The Christian God, Jesus Christ, God, come to earth to break through our sin, to provide a way for us to know God, a way to be forgiven and reconciled with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Mercy beyond description. A God who is kind and loving and always in a good mood and always there to pour out his grace and glory upon us. He's not just merciful, he is great in mercy. He is great in mercy, truth number one. And so we rejoice in that. We've got the test, we've got the trial, but you are great in mercy and I will give you glory and praise for that, my wonderful king. But number two, it says, and he is in his, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. What does it mean to be a Christian? Martin Tegall told us three weeks ago at the baptism service. It means that we have been born again. In John 3, Nicodemus asked Jesus, how do I enter the kingdom? And Jesus says, you've got to be born again. And as we learnt, the reality is what that means is Jesus is trying to use language to describe it's kind of mad. You know, what it would it be like if you could interview a little baby after birth? You'd be like, what was it like, mate? And he'd be like, mad. Everything was one way. It was all like warm and cozy. And then suddenly it's like vibrant lights and awesome. He's saying, when you become a Christian, it's not like, oh, I go to church now. Yeah, I follow the Ten Commandments. No, you are born again. Everything changes. It is the most profound changes. Your desires change. Your appetites change. What you live for changes. You are a transformed person. You are a new creation. The old is gone as far as the east is from the west. So far has our God removed our transgressions. It is a profound and utterly dynamic change. Everything changes to be born again. And so what happens is, God's glory weighs more heavily in your life than your own things. God's glory, his fame, his renown, living for Christ is all that you care about. His glory suddenly is the thing that you live for. And so therefore, if God in his perfect sovereignty should see fit to remove things that are precious to you, even families or jobs or things that we really love, ultimately though, we can still rejoice because the promise of God is that he will never remove himself from us. He will never leave us. And if our life is ultimately all about him and his glory, because now we live for him, ultimately we can still rejoice, although the test and the pain is still real, because God has born us again, he's birthed us again, whatever the word is, into something incredible. And so even when, even when you lose things in this life that this world says are so important, money or whatever, you can say, to be honest with you, I have Christ. He's my treasure. His glory is the thing that weighs in my life. It gives so much glory to God when people who are wealthy just give it away. Because they say, why? Because he's my treasure. Not wealth. He's my treasure. I loved it when I read a few years ago that the, the guy who, who started Domino's Pizzas, he read C.S. Lewis and he got born again. And it was worth a billion. Just gave it away. Blow that. Who cares? It's just money. He just gave it away. And he just lived like a normal life. I love that. That's mad. And that's God. That's what it is to be born again. If you don't know Christ, to be a Christian means that you have the greatest treasure. It means that the things of this life grow strangely dim because he is everything to you. 
And he will receive glory. And he will allow us to be tested. Because as we're tested, do you know what? It gives a chance for him to be glorified. Because even we go, that X, Y, and Z have all been removed. Those things were in my life and they're real and difficult. But do you know what I want to say to you, a non-Christian? Christ burns in my life and his glory is everything. And so this life is wonderful. And notice this, he has borne us again. He is the one. He has caused us to go from darkness into light. We had nothing to do with it. We had nothing to do with it. There is a lie about this nation. That kind of, become a Christian means you look at the facts and you work it out. And at one kind of, one level it kind of is like that. But ultimately, when you look at scripture, it is very clear. God causes us to respond to him. He takes us out of darkness and he puts us in light. How, if I was to interview, I don't know what the newest baby is here, Reuben maybe, a new little born baby. Hey buddy, what did you do to get born? Nothing. I just existed and I was born. Everyone else did everything else. So too with us. When we are born again, it's not because we did X, Y, it's because God birthed us. It's incredible. One way of putting it is in Psalm 40, it says, He drew me up from the pit of destruction. I am hugely claustrophobic. I don't think there's anything that terrifies me more than the idea of being in a collapsed mine shaft, hundreds of feet underground. And just being trapped and you can't move and it's all dark and terrifying. You can hardly even breathe and you know you've just got minutes to live. Picture the scene. Somewhat scary. That's kind of what it was like before you became a Christian. In the pit of destruction. Totally helpless. Totally vulnerable. You couldn't save yourself if you tried. Under there. Trapped. Helpless. And then suddenly, suddenly, there's the muffled cry of a rescuer. We're coming to get you. Suddenly. The pressure starts to, starts to move as the, the soil is taken away. Suddenly a burst of light comes through. Suddenly two strong arms pick you up, helpless, and drag you from that pit. And suddenly you're back on terra firma. The, the sky is sunny, the birds are singing, fresh air fills your lungs. God rescued us. He rescued us. We had nothing to do with it. He is our saviour. He is the one who has caused us by his great mercy to be born again. Born again. Thirdly, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus Christ is our hope. And the gospel, this hope is living. Yeah, just imagine like a branch. It's not like a dead, old, horrible branch. It's a new, blossoming branch. Why is that hope always living? Because it's based on the gospel. It's based on the gospel which says Jesus Christ came to this earth. He lived the life that we could never live. He lived a perfect life, a spotlessness. And he died the death that we should have died. So that you and I could go free. He has redeemed us. Taken us out of slavery. He has washed us clean. The wrath of God has been diverted. We have been justified in the high court of heaven. The list goes on of incredible things that Jesus Christ's life, death and resurrection has achieved for us. And therefore, our hope is living. It's living. It's not based on how we feel. It's based on the truth of the resurrection. When Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, everything changed. The new age began. He said, one day, you too, if you follow me, if you come with me, if you are owned by me, oh Christians, one day, when you physically die, you will be raised to newness of life. And I'll prove it. I will prove it. And he's proved it. When he was raised from the dead, a new age genuinely began. Death, the greatest enemy, was defeated. And we are just in this brief time now, where we know that certainly happened, and we're just in this brief time, just a few years as it were, before the whole world realises it, when Jesus Christ returns and makes it clear. But the, the reality of the historical truth of the resurrection is the thing that makes our hope living. It is the certainty that historical event happened. It means that we can always be hopeful even when tests and obstacles and trials are pushing in on our life. Fourthly, he's caused us to be born again through a resurrection to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. In a world where the things that we own are fading away, collapsing away, where banks are falling apart, where even governments are being exposed as weak and fragile, this scripture tells us 
that Jesus Christ has got us an inheritance that he guarantees will never perish, never be defiled, and never fall apart. And finally, he says this, kept in heaven for you. It's kept in heaven for you. This isn't our home. As great as this world is, this is not our home. Ultimately, if you're a Christian, our ultimate home is in heaven. And we don't mean, when we say heaven, a big cloud playing a harp. The Bible is clear that one day God's going to make a new creation, physical as well as spiritual. More mind-boggling than we could ever imagine. Our truest place actually now is not here. And I want to say this, if you are a Christian here today, this is as tough as life will ever get. This life. This is the toughest it's ever going to get in this life. Because one day, when we are reunited with Christ, the book of Revelation tells us, there'll be no more tears, no more mourning, no more sadness. It even says God himself will wipe away every tear. That's a mind-blowing thing. I'm constantly wiping Daisy and Lily's tears. They are constantly smashing into things, my daughters. But one day, our God, he will wipe away every tear. This is just the beginning. This is just the beginning. We are living in our hearts for a world to come that ultimately carries us through. And so in that, we rejoice. We rejoice. An inheritance that is perfect and is protected, kept in heaven for you. And look at this one final thing. And this is just the final, final glorious thing. Who by God's power are being kept through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. You see, as great as this truth is, that this world to come is imperishable and unchanging, if we could somehow lose it, if we somehow could not make it, then that would be no comfort. But this is the incredible truth that Peter gives us to bring us massive security. You who are by God's power are being guarded. It's like a military term. God is guarding your faith. Your faith is being guarded by nothing less than the God of the universe. Right now, he is standing like a sentry guarding your faith. Some of you are saying, Tom, I just don't know if I can keep on holding on to Jesus. Do you know what? He will hold on to you. He will hold on to you. Some of you are saying, I don't know if I can just keep walking with Jesus. Guess what? This scripture tells us he will carry you. Some of you are saying, I don't know if I can stay close to Jesus. This scripture tells us he will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus Christ, our salvation, our faith isn't a thing in and of itself. It's based in Jesus. It's trusting in Jesus that he will complete that which he has started in you. So if you're facing a test here today, as you rejoice in these truths, and we've just begun the treasure trove of this book, it goes on and on and on. What we find is that the tests in our life that seem so consuming, bit by bit by bit, actually change. They're still there, but God's glory, his weight, the truth of who he is and what he's done, and the future that awaits every single Christian, becomes more and more glorious. I'll never forget I'll never forget going to Simon and Caroline at Carrie Clark's wedding uh, a year or two ago. Many of you would have been there, a couple in our church. And I remember on the front row, Carrie's mum, her husband had died a, a, a week or two earlier from cancer. I'll never forget, we went to the first song, and, you know, good Christians, hand in the air. Pretty cool worship, not her. Both hands full in the air. Beaming with joy, crying, but rejoicing. And I knew she was feeling the agony of losing her loved one. That was a real thing. But if you know her, the weight of God's glory is so much more heavy in her life. She is a mighty theologian. She is someone who drinks in God's word, who lives on it, who meditates on it, who makes it her daily, hourly, minute-by-minute minute practice to be dwelling in that world, the scriptural, biblical world, which means that even when her husband has only just been buried, it's not because she's a superstar or something, but because she is actually someone and her whole life is positioned around making God's truth and his weight more heavy in her life. It meant with all integrity, she could rejoice. 
she could love her God, knowing that her husband was in a better place and knowing that she was still hidden in Christ and that he would not let her foot slip. He would never leave her or forsake her. The pain was real, and yet the pleasure of being in his presence was so much greater. We're going to stand. Can we stand? I'd like to invite the band back. We are going to rejoice in our God. I've spent half an hour telling us why. So if you are facing tests, you know I'm not just being positron. I'm being biblical. And I want us to rejoice. And after that, we are going. If you need prayer for anything, we want to serve you. We've got an outstanding ministry team with red t-shirts who will be there to pray for you. But what the scripture tells us as we go into our new series, which is there to equip us to do well. You guys want to do well in this life? Hands in the air. We all want to do well. So that when we face tensions and pressures, we are not surprised. No, no, we're not surprised. We go, I will rejoice in my God. And it may not be a big, you know, kind of rejoicing. It may be a quiet rejoicing in your heart, which is just fine. But it's positioning God's truth, his glory, who he is and what he's done as the main thing in your life above everything else. Let's just reach out our hands. Lord, I want to pray for us. Lord, we love you. We do love you. We say thank you. Your truth is not what we would expect, Lord. (laughs) Your truth changes us. We don't come and try and impose our thoughts on you. We come humbly and submit to your truth. Lord, we are so grateful, Lord, that your truth is sharp. It is clear. It is absolutely life-changing. And we say today, God, thank you your presence is here. Thank you that your glory is real. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You say that one day the glory of God will fill the world as the waters cover the sea. That's true. It's going to happen. As sure as the resurrection has happened, that will happen. And in that we rejoice. And today we position our hearts afresh upon the King of Kings, seated in splendor. We say, God, we love you. We honor you. And we say, you are the treasure that we live for. Lord, I pray as we rejoice, say, Lord Jesus, help us to be a people who live with you at the centre in every season of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.